It is great to be here this morning, and it's great to begin, at least in, in our body, in our congregation, this celebration of the Christmas season. We call it Advent. I wonder how many of us know what the word Advent actually means. It's a word that, in our tradition, we don't necessarily use that frequently. It comes from Latin. It means coming or arrival. And what's interesting about the Advent season, we associate it with Christmas, we associate it with Christ's first coming, but it's actually broader than that. Advent points to two comings. There's the one that has happened and there's the one that is yet to happen. We both look backward and we look forward in this Advent season. And each week as we go through this season, we'll talk about a theme and we'll light a candle that corresponds with that theme. And this morning is hope. So as I light this candle of hope, I want you to think about that word. What does that word mean to you? It's one of those words that I think has lost a lot of the richness, at least the richness that it it carries in the context of Scripture. Here's some ways that I've used the word hope this week. I hope I get a good night's sleep. I hope my team wins. I hope the weather is nice. It's mostly kind of wishful thinking, the way we use the word hope often. It's a little bit like knocking on wood. I hope this happens, you know. I hope I get lucky or, you know, I hope that whatever, whatever arrangements or powers that be or circumstances will come together for, for a, the, the benefit of what I hope happens. This morning's text that we'll dig into as we launch into this Advent series called Arrival will ground us in a much more rich definition and context for hope. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 9. If you didn't bring a Bible, but you have a phone or an iPad or something or some kind of device that you could turn to, I really would like you to look at the text if you're able to, and there's a few things I want to point out. So we'll do a briefer than normal exposition of the text, and then we'll jump into a few lessons that we learn about hope from this passage in Isaiah chapter 9. As you're turning, let me give you a little bit of context. This was written by a prophet, a Hebrew prophet named Isaiah, He lived about 700 years before Christ's first coming. So this was approximately 700 BC when these words were written. And he was writing to the southern kingdom. If you remember, there had been kind of a civil war and and Israel had been broken up into two parts. The northern kingdom, which, which had the name Israel, was in the north. And the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem was, had the name Judah and it was in the south. And Isaiah was a prophet primarily to the southern kingdom. And he was writing in dark times. Things were not going well for the nation of Judah, for the Hebrew people. There were enemies on multiple sides. There was always the threat of war. Their neighbors to the north, Israel, had just been wiped out recently in 722 uh, BC. The Assyrians came in and, and swept them off. And so all you have left is this little tiny nation of Judah. And in the midst of that fear and in the midst of that darkness, Isaiah the prophet gave the Hebrew people hope. And this is what he wrote. We'll we'll read just three verses from this text, beginning in verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Pause there. I want you to notice the parallelism. It's a, it's a poetic device. Isaiah is saying the same thing in two different ways. So the people who walk in darkness will see a light. Those who live in a dark land, 
Light will shine on them. Also, there's some imagery introduced, isn't there? Light and darkness. It's the perfect image. It's what the people needed at this moment in their history of dark days. Isaiah is telling them, it may be nighttime now, but morning is coming. Morning is on the way. And then he proceeds to give them the reason that they can hope in better days. And we see that beginning in verse 6. Let's read that verse. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Hope for the nation of Judah will come in a very surprising, unexpected way from a baby. A baby born. Now, anytime you're studying Old Testament prophecy, particularly prophecy about the coming or the advent of Jesus Christ, it's important to remember the historical context that the prophets and the people, as they would have heard these words and read these words, they were looking forward to the first coming. We look back on the first coming. In fact, it wasn't even clear as God chose to reveal himself through the prophets. It wasn't clear back then that there were going to be two separate advents. In fact, I might illustrate it this way. If you think about the two comings of Jesus... Uh, these two fingers I'm holding up. We look backward at the first coming, you know, in the Bethlehem, and he comes as a baby, and we know he came to suffer for us and bear our sins so that we can be reconciled in right relationship with God. We look back at that coming. We look forward to another coming where he will come as king, and he will rule over the earth, and he will make things well. We've been singing about that already this morning. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king, etc. Now, we have perspective in between the two advents of Jesus. And we can look backward, we can look forward, but imagine the perspective from the Hebrew people before Jesus came the first time. The prophets often wrote about the prophecy almost like they're just talking about the advent, so it was a different perspective. They didn't necessarily distinguish between one and the other. They were looking at things from a different perspective, from an angle. So when you read prophecies about Messiah from the Old Testament, there's often an intermingling of prophecies about the first coming and the second coming, and there's not necessarily a distinguishing marker between the two. That's the way that God chose to reveal it. So what we see in this verse even is a prophecy about the first coming. A child will be born to us. He's come, right? And a prophecy that will be fully fulfilled still in our future, in the second coming, the government will rest on his shoulders. Now, what does that actually mean? Think about a robe that would be given to a king when he takes over the throne. It was a symbol of his authority and his power. It's also a symbol of the weight of leadership, that Jesus will bear the full weight and authority of governance over the entire earth. Let's briefly walk through the four titles that Jesus is given. Don't think about these as necessarily proper names that he would be literally called by, but think of them as descriptions of who he is in his character. Wonderful counselor. Wonderful is another one of those words in English that it means whatever we want it to mean. You know, I hope, hope you had a wonderful day. You know, have a wonderful meal, etc. In the Old Testament context, about 80% of the time, it meant supernatural. Wondrous, you know, kind of above what we can fully understand or grasp according to the way uh, that we see the world. Counselor, don't think of a therapist sitting on the couch here. Think about a wise ruler, 
Someone who has supernatural wisdom and is able to guide the rulership and authority that this ruler will have. The second title, Almighty God. Here we find the the tension in these verses of the Incarnation. So how is it possible that a baby will be born, a little small, little fragile, six, seven pound infant who also could rightly be called Almighty God? Mystery there. The Incarnation. Everlasting Father is another reference to Messiah's identity as God. He would be the father of the nation, but not just like Judah's other kings would be the father of the nation. He would provide and protect them for all time because he is God. And finally, Prince of Peace. The Hebrew word for peace is so rich. It's the word shalom. We've talked about that a couple of times in here, but it carries this weight of of not just the absence of conflict, but but human flourishing, that all things being well. It's like the happy ending of the movie when the broken pieces are stitched back together and relationships are right and we're connected the way that we were intended to be. That's this concept that this prince would usher in peace. Human flourishing. I like the way Tom Constable wrote as he reflected on these four titles. Uh, He's a scholar, Bible scholar and professor. This is what he wrote. The first two titles suggest divine wisdom and power, and the second two titles present the ends he would achieve through the use of those attributes, namely fatherly care and sovereign peace. That's what's being promised. Fatherly care and sovereign peace. Let's continue in verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Here's a vision of life under this future king. And for the original audience, the Hebrew people, it would have stirred in them, honestly, the same emotion that I hope it stirs in you as you look forward to this second coming. It's this longing that we have. This idea that that, that is what we're made for. When, when, when we sense injustice in the world, when, when we sense that there's a lack of peace, of shalom, when our own hearts cry out and our own grief as we struggle with all kinds of things that God allows to enter into our existence right now, we cry out, we long for things to be made right. This is a vision of when that will happen. This is a vision of the second coming, the second advent that they were looking forward to, but we're also looking forward to. Here's the summary of these three verses of prophet Isaiah. He says to the people of Judah, and by extension to you and to me today, Here is hope. Things are dark now, but all will be made right when the Savior comes. I hope you can see how the promises were not just for them in 700 BC. They're still for us. I want to give you three lessons about hope that I think that we can learn from this passage. The first is this. Hope is always forward-facing. 
If you count the number of future tense verbs in just these three verses, verse 2, verse 6, verse 7, 8. Eight future tense verbs. Isaiah is saying, God will, God will, God will, God will, over and over again. He is intentionally directing their gaze forward. He's reminding them that something is coming, that mourning is coming. Look for it. Direct your gaze forward, is what Isaiah is saying. Hope, by nature, looks ahead. It looks forward to what is not yet here. In fact, I would even say hope is an acknowledgement that it's not yet here. We look ahead. We look forward. It's remembering that it may not be here yet, but it is on the way. I like the way I heard one person describe it. Hope is the confident expectation that a day is coming and history simply hasn't caught up to it yet. You see, it is on the way. We live in a now-oriented, instantaneous, instant gratification world, maybe in a way, probably in a way that the, the earth has never known before. We don't like to wait for anything. Our attention spans have never been shorter. And I think that's true, not just in the culture out there, it's true with us. Like We can't get away from it. Everything is now. I want to be served well now. I want the right food now. I want comfort now. I want all these things now. And if I'm not feeling this, if I don't have them, I'm, I feel attention. I struggle. I feel discontent. Here's the thing about hope. There's nothing quick or instantaneous about hope. By definition, it is patient. It is long-suffering. It is enduring. And you see, that characteristic of hope doesn't make it weaker. The slow-burning nature of hope is what gives it its strength. And I think for us, it's what makes us strong as well when we practice the discipline of hoping. You see, Shifting our gaze from the now and hoping to what lies ahead. It's a spiritual discipline for us. It strengthens the muscles of our faith because they atrophy in a culture defined by instant gratification. Now, I'd say this. We do have one thing going for us that the original audience of these words didn't have. And that's this idea that we stand between the two advents. Now, here's why this is an advantage, right? They, they were looking ahead to both of them. We can look back at the one that gives confidence for the next, you see. So we can look back at what historically happened. Like, just for a minute, just think about even secular history. Historians would tell you there's never been a person ever born on the earth that has as dramatically changed human history as Jesus Christ. No matter what you believe and what your faith says, that's just historically true. There's consensus on that. You see how Jesus in his first coming changed the world dramatically? Does that not give you confidence that when he comes back, he will change the world even more? Transformation is on the way. We can have the confidence as we look back. And that's why this Advent season is so important. That's why it is important to look back at the manger, to look back at the baby, even as we look ahead to the king who is on his way. We look back so that we have the confidence and faith to hope. Lesson two. Hope is trusting in a promise, not wishing for a circumstance. 
Now, here's what I'll say about this season. It's a little bit of a crazy season. I don't know about you, but I've already like felt the, the, the rush of having to get on the superhighway that is the Christmas season and all the traffic, and but not just the traffic, the, the busyness and the pressure and the expectations. And it, you will, over the next three weeks, you already have been, bombarded with a message through Christmas specials and through the commercials and all that stuff that is the Christmas season. And here's what the message essentially boils down to. If you buy the right gifts, if you get the Christmas bonus, if family is all together and everybody sets aside their differences for a brief moment and sits around a table with delicious food, then all can be well. There can be peace on earth through this arrangement of circumstances. You can have the warm, glowy, ooey-gooey feeling that is the Christmas spirit. Now, I'm not a Grinch against all that stuff. I, I love this time of year. I, I, I get swept up and caught up in all these kinds of things. But the problem is putting your hope, if you want to call that, in, in the circumstances surrounding this season will always disappoint you. Circumstances will fail you. Your family might get the stomach bug. Your kids might be ungrateful and have a meltdown. I I know that's happening in my household from time to time. Maybe an adult child of yours won't come home or maybe won't even call. Maybe you'll buy the wrong gift. Maybe somebody will give you a gift that you hadn't bought a gift for them and that's always awkward. Maybe the family will argue the whole time. Maybe you won't ever get that moment with the turkey where everything is right. Maybe Cousin Eddie will show up unexpected. (laughs) Circumstances will disappoint. Just bank on it. Just say, right now, I'm preparing myself. I'm not going to put the hope of this season on these things coming together the way that it's being promised that all can be, well, I'm going to stop knocking on wood and I'm going to shift my hope to a solid place. We have a hope that is solid because it's rooted in the promise of God. And Titus chapter 1 reminds us he cannot lie. It's against his character. It's against his nature to lie. He has come. He will come again and make all things right. So here's what that means for you over the next three weeks. The pressure is off to build the perfect Christmas. Your hope doesn't lie in yuletide cheer and chestnuts roasting and somebody going to Jared. going to fail you but that's okay you see that's okay in fact i would even say this what would it look like for the predictable unfulfillingness of all that other stuff to direct your gaze to the true hope i you know even sort of the brokenness of this season that, that some of us feel when things don't work out right could those actual circumstances point us where our gaze should be directed One more lesson that will kind of bridge us into the so what of the message this morning. Hope doesn't just change the way you feel, it changes the way you live. People with hope are emboldened to shine light into dark spaces. I was reflecting on a couple of the most popular movies right now. Hunger Games is number one at the box office, and the other movie that everybody's talking about is Star Wars. It hasn't even come out yet. I think it sold well over $50 million in ticket sales already. 
And I thought about these two stories and many other stories in our culture, and I thought about a common theme. And here's the common theme, what these two movies have in common and a bunch of other stories as well. Is you, you have evil, you have an evil empire, you have an evil ruler of some kind that is oppressing the people, right? that is doing injustice, that is, that is kind of shielding light, that is hovering darkness and just surrounding the people in darkness and holding them down. And the theme is always this. There's only one thing that that evil ruler or evil empire is afraid of. You know what that one thing is? Hope. They do anything in their power to squash hope. Now, why is that? Why is hope so threatening to evil? Because when people have hope, they don't just feel differently. They live differently. It flows into their actions. They begin to imagine Life could be different. And so they push against the status quo. They begin to do subversive things. They rebel against evil. They step out and say, we refuse to believe life will be this way any longer. They begin to live out the life that could be and what they believe will be. This is what the gospel of hope does in our dark world, you see. Those who have real hope begin to live differently in the world we begin to become points of light for a people walking in darkness. We can be free enough and we can be courageous enough to direct our gaze outward into a world that needs light, a world that scripture would say right now is governed by darkness, by the prince of darkness, and we can say hope has come And hope is coming again. Now, there are all kinds of ways that we do this. One of my prayers for us as a body is that we would see these three weeks, as everybody's talking about Christmas, we'd see these three weeks as a very strategic opportunity for us to do this, for us to live this out, for us to bring light into dark spaces in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our workplaces. Now, one of the ways that we do that, I just suggest this is just one of the things, I hope you're thinking about this season, but it's important to us, is something that we talk about every year at this time. If you've been around fellowship for any period of time, you know when we get to Christmas, we start talking about global Christmas. This is an opportunity for us to give above and beyond what we normally would but, but not just to kind of ease our conscience this time of year and make ourselves feel better so that we can bring hope into places that need hope. So I want you to watch this video that's going to remind us why we do this and then I'll come back up here and tell you how you can get involved. Less under our tree means more for the world. It's a lot more than a nice little sentiment. You know, you may see that and just start thinking now. Hey, what would that mean for our family this year? Two weeks from today, you'll get a chance to get involved in that directly. We'll have a special offering that day and we'll celebrate the opportunity that we have. And listen, this is no small thing. Uh, For those who have been over with our partners ministering, God is doing incredible things and it's in no small part to the generosity of this body. And as that video reminded us, The doors are open. The doors are open for the gospel to go forth. And he's equipped us. He's stewarded us with some of the resources that he wants to use to do that. 
Well, here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. And then after my prayer, I'm going to ask you to stay in your seats. I'm going to give you instructions for our community meal or invite all of us to, to hang around for a few minutes and enjoy that together. But before we do, let's bow our heads. And we pray to you, Father, remembering how good you are to send your son. And we love to talk about him. And we love to tell the story of when he came the first time. And we love to sing the songs because they root us in who we really are. They ground us in our identity as your children through the sacrifice of our Savior. And they remind us not just of who we are, but who we one day will become and what the world will be like when you send your son again. We pray that it would be soon. Father, help us even as we pray through how we might apply this idea of hope to our own lives, that it would fuel us to look ahead and to live now because what we know is coming then. Help us to hold the tension well. We hurt, we long, and you know, you care. Thank you for reminding us of that this morning. In the great name of Jesus, amen.